This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Flight to Forever by Paul Anderson. It's read by John W. Michaels. It runs 2 hours 13 minutes, and we will be discussing it next week. Flight to Forever by Paul Anderson. I'm John W. Michaels. One man against the limitless wastes of time, he fought the strange inhuman civilizations of Earth's unguessable future, searching hopelessly among the never-ending tomorrows for the road to one unforgettable yesterday. Chapter One, No Return That morning it rained a summery mist, blowing over the hills and hiding the gleam of the river in the village beyond. Martin Sanders stood in the doorway, letting the cool, wet air blow in his face, and wondered what the weather would be like a hundred years from now. Eve Lang came up behind him and laid a hand on his arm. He smiled down at her thinking how lovely she was with the raindrops caught in her dark hair like small pearls. She didn't say anything. There was no need for it. And he felt grateful for silence. He was the first to speak. Not long now, Eve. And then, realizing the banality of it, he smiled. Only, why do we have this airport feeling? It's not as if I'll be gone long. A hundred years, she said. Take it easy, darling. The theory is foolproof. I've been on time jaunts before, remember? Twenty years ahead and twenty back. Projector works. It's been proven in practice. This is just a little longer trip, that's all. The automatic machines that went back a hundred years ahead never came back. Exactly. Some damn fool thing or other went wrong with them. Tubes blew their silly heads off. Or some such thing. That's why Sam and I have to go to see what went wrong. We can repair our machine. We can compensate for the well-known perversity of vacuum tubes. But why the two of you? One would be enough, Sam. Sam is no physicist. He might not be able to find the trouble. On the other hand, as a skilled mechanic, he can do things I never could. We supplement each other. Sanders took a deep breath. Look, darling... Sam Hull's bass shout rang out to them. All set, folks. Any time you want to go, we can ride. Coming. Sanders took his time, bidding Eve a proper farewell, a little in advance. She followed him into the house and down to the capacious underground workshop. The projector stood in a clutter of apparatus under the white radiance of floral tubes. It was unoppressive from the outside, a metal cylinder some ten feet high, and thirty feet long with the unfinished look of all experimental setups. The outer shell was simply protection for the battery banks and the massive dimensional projector within. A tiny space in the forward end was left for the two men. Sam Hall gave them a gay wave. His massive form almost blotted out the gray-smocked little body of MacPherson. "'All set for a hundred years ahead,' he exclaimed." Two thousand seventy-three, here we come.' MacPherson blinked owlishly at them from behind thick lenses. "'It all tests out,' he said. 
Or so Sam here tells me. Personally, I wouldn't know an oscillograph from a clistron. You have an ample supply of spare parts and tools. There should be no difficulty. I'm not looking for any, Doc, said Saunders. Eve here won't believe we aren't going to be eaten by monsters with stalked eyes and long fangs. I keep telling her that all we're going to do is check your automatic machines, if we can find them and make a few astronomical observations and come back. There'll be people in the future, said Eve. Oh, well, if they invite us in for a drink, we won't say no, shrugged Hull. Which reminds me, he faced a pint out of his capricious coverall pocket. We ought to drink a toast or something, huh? Saunders frowned a little. He didn't want to add to Eve's impression of a voyage into darkness. She was worried enough. Poor kid, poor lovely kid. Hell, he said. We've been back to 1953 and seen the house standing. We've been ahead to 1993 and seen the house standing. Nobody home at either time. These jaunts are too dull to rate a toast. Nothing, said Hall, is too dull to rate a drink. He poured, and they touched glasses, a strange little ceremony in the utterly prosaic laboratory. Bon voyage. Bon voyage. Eve tried to smile, but the hand that lifted the glass to her lips trembled a little. Come on, said Hall. Let's go, Mart. Sooner we get out, the sooner we can get back. Sure. With a gesture of decision, Sanders put down his glass and swung toward the machine. Bye, Eve. I'll see you in a couple of hours, after a hundred years or so. So long, Martin. She made the name a caress. MacPherson beamed with avuncular approval. Saunders squeezed himself into the forward compartment with Hall. He was a big man, long-limbed and wide-shouldered, with blunt, homely features under a shock of brown hair and wide-set gray eyes, lined with crow's feet from much squinting into the sun. He wore only the plain blouse and slacks of his work, stained here and there with grease or acid. The compartment was barely large enough for the two of them, and crowded with instruments as well as the rifle and pistol they had along to quiet Eve's fears. Saunders swore the guns got in his way and closed the door. The clang had to it an odd note of finality. "'Here goes,' said Hull unnecessarily. Saunders nodded and started the projector warming up. Its powerful thrum filled the cabin and vibrated in his bones. Needles flickered across gauge faces, approaching stable values. Through the single porthole he saw Eve waving. He waved back and then, with an angry motion, flung down the main switch. The machine shimmered, blurred, and was gone. Eve drew a shuddering breath and turned back to MacPherson. Grayness swirled briefly before them, and the drone of the projectors filled the machine with an enormous song. Sanders watched the gauges and inched back the switch which controlled the rate of time advancement. A hundred years ahead, less a number of days since they'd sent the first automatic, so that no dunderhead in the future would find it and walk off with it. He slapped down the switch, and the noise and vibration came to a ringing halt. Sunlight streamed in through the porthole. "'No house?' asked Hull. "'A century is a long time,' said Saunders. "'Come on, let's go out and have a look.' They crawled through the door and stood erect. The machine lay in the bottom of a half-filled pit above which grasses waved. 
few broken shards of stone projected from the earth. There was a bright blue sky overhead, with fluffy white clouds billowing across it. "'No automatics,' said Hall, looking around. "'That's odd. But maybe the ground level adjusts. Let's go topside.' Saunders scrambled up the sloping walls of the pit. It was obviously the half-filled basement of the old house, which must somehow have been destroyed in the eighty years since his last visit. The ground-level machine in the projector automatically materialized it on the exact surface whenever it emerged. There would be no sudden falls or sudden burials under risen earth, nor would the disastrous materializations inside something solid, mass-sensitive circuits, prevented the machine from halting whenever the solid matter occupied its own space. Liquid or gas molecules could not get out of the way fast enough. Saunders stood in tall, wind-rippled grass and looked over the serene landscape of upper New York State. Nothing had changed. The river and the forested hills beyond it were the same. The sun was bright and clouds shone in the heavens. No, no, before God. Where was the village? House gone? Town gone? What had happened? Had people simply moved away, or— He looked back down to the basement. Only a few minutes ago, a hundred years in the past, he had stood there in a tangle of battered apparatus, and Doc and Eve. And now it was a pit with wild grass covering the raw earth. An odd desolation tugged at him. Was he still alive today? Was Eve— the gerontology of 1973 made it entirely possible, but one never knew, and he didn't want to find out. "'Must to give the country back to the Indians,' grunted Sam Hall. The prosaic wisecrack restored a sense of balance. After all, any sensible man knew that things changed with time. There would be good and evil in the future, as there had been in the past, and they lived happily ever after was pure myth. The important thing was change, an unending flux out of which all could come. And right now there was a job to do. They scouted around in the grass, but there was no trace of the small automatic projectors. Hull scowled thoughtfully. You know, he said, I think they started back and blew out on the way. He must be right, nodded Saunders. We can't have arrived more than a few minutes after the return point. He started back toward the big machine. Let's take our observation and get out. They set up their astronomical equipment and took readings on the declining sun. Waiting for night, they cooked a meal on a camp stove and sat while a cricket-chirping dusk deepened around them. I like this future, said Hull. It's peaceful. think I'll retire here, or now in my old age. The thought of transtemporal resorts made Saunders grin. But who knew, maybe? The stars wheeled grandly overhead. Saunders jotted down figures on right dissension, declination, and passage times. From that, they could calculate later, almost to the minute, how far the machine had taken them. They had not moved in space at all, of course, relative to the surface of the Earth. Absolute space was an obsolete fiction, and as far as the projector was concerned, Earth was the immobile center of the universe. They waded through dew-wet grass back to the machine. 
We'll try ten-year stops, looking for the automatics, said Saunders. If we don't find them that way, to hell with them. I'm hungry. 2063, it was raining into the pit. 2053, sunlight and emptiness. 2043, the pit was fresher now, and a few rotting timbers lay half buried in the ground. Sandra scowled at the meters. She's drawing more power than she should, he said. 2023, the house had obviously burned. Charred stumps of wood were in sight, and the projector had roared with a skull-cracking insanity of power. Energy drained from the batteries like water from a squeezed sponge. The resistor was beginning to glow. They checked the circuits inch by inch, wire by wire. Nothing was out of order. Let's go. Hull's face was white. It was a battle to leap the next ten years. It took half an hour of bawling, thundering, tortured labor for the projector to fight backward. Radiated energy made the cabin unendurably hot. 2013, the fire-blackened basement still stood. On the floor lay two small cylinders, tarnished with some years of weathering. The automatics got a little further back, said Hull. Then they quit, and just lay there. Saunders examined them. When he looked up from the instruments, his face was grim with the choking fear that was rising within him. Drained, he said. Batteries completely dead. They used up all their energy reserves. What the devil is this? It was almost a snarl from Hull. I don't know. There seems to be some kind of resistance which increases the further back we go. Come on. But come on, goddammit. Saunders shrugged hopelessly. It took two hours to fight back five years. Then Saunders stopped the projector. His voice shook. No go, Sam. We've used up three-quarters of our stored energy, and the farther back we go, the more we use per year. It seems to be some sort of high-order exponential function. So? So we'd never make it. At this rate, our batteries will be dead before we get back another ten years. Saunders looked ill. It's some effect the theory didn't allow for. Some accelerating increase in power requirements the further back into the past we go. For twenty-four year hops, or less, the energy increases roughly as the square of the number of years traveled. But it must actually be something like an exponential curve, which starts building up fast and furious beyond a certain point. We haven't enough power left in the batteries. If we could recharge them, we don't have such equipment with us. But maybe... They climbed out of the ruined basement and looked eagerly towards the river. There was no sign of the village. It must have been torn down or otherwise destroyed, still further back in the past at a point they'd been through. No help there, said Saunders. We can look for a place. There must be people somewhere. No doubt. Saunders fought for calm. But we could spend a long time looking for them, you know, and... His voice wavered. Sam... I'm not sure even recharging at intervals would help. Looks very much to me as if the curve of energy consumption is approaching a vertical asymptote. Talk English, will you? Hull's grin was forced. I mean that beyond a certain number of years, an infinite amount of energy may be required. Like the Einsteinian concept of light as the limiting velocity. As you approach the speed of light, the energy needed to accelerate increases ever more rapidly. 
you'd need infinite energy to get beyond the speed of light, which is just a fancy way of saying you can't do it. The same thing may apply to time as well as space. You mean we can't ever get back? I don't know. Saunders looked despondently around at the smiling landscape. I could be wrong, but I'm horribly afraid I'm right. Oh, swore. What are we going to do about it? We've got two choices, Saunders said. One, we can hunt for people, recharge our batteries, and keep trying. Two, we can go into the future. The future? Uh-huh. Sometime in the future they ought to know more about such things than we do. They may know a way to get around this effect. Certainly they could give us a powerful enough engine so that if energy is all that is needed, we can get back. A small atomic generator, for instance. Hull stood with bent head, turning the thought over in his mind. There was a metal lark singing somewhere, maddeningly sweet. Saunders forced a harsh laugh. But the very first thing on the agenda, he said, is breakfast. Chapter 2. Belgati of Cirrus The food was tasteless. They ate in a heavy silence, choking the stuff down. But in the end they looked at each other with a common resolution. Hull grinned and stuck out a hairy paw. It's a hell of a roundabout way to get home, he said. But I'm for it. Saunders clasped hands with him wordlessly. They went back to the machine. And now where? asked the mechanic. It's two thousand eight, said Saunders. How about, well, two thousand five hundred A.D.? Okay, it's a nice round number. Anchors away. The machine thrummed and shook. Saunders was gratified to notice the small power consumption as the years and decades flew by. At that rate... They had energy enough to travel to the end of the world. Eve, Eve, I'll come back. I'll come back if I have to go ahead to Judgment Day. 2500 A.D., the machine blinked into materialization on top of a low hill. The pit had filled in during the intervening centuries. Pale, hurried sunlight flashed through the wind-driven rain clouds into the hot interior. Come, said Hull. We haven't got all day. He picked up the automatic rifle. What's the idea? exclaimed Saunders. Eve was right the first time, said Hull grimly. Buckle on that pistol, Mart. Saunders strapped a heavy weapon to his thigh. The metal was cold under his fingers. They stepped out and swept the horizon. Hull's voice rose in a shout of glee. People! There was a small town beyond the river, near the site of Old Hudson. Beyond it lay fields of ripening grain and clumps of trees. There was no sign of a highway. Maybe surface transportation was obsolete now. The town looked old. It must have been there a long time. The houses were weathered. They were tall, peak-roofed buildings, crowding narrow streets. A flashing metal tower reared some five hundred feet into the lowering sky, near the center of town. Somehow it didn't look the way Saunders had visualized communities of the future. It had an oddly stunted appearance, despite the high buildings and sinister. He couldn't say. Maybe it was only his depression. Something rose from the center of the town, a black obid that whipped into the sky and lined out across the river. Reception committee, thought Saunders. His hand fell on his pistol butt. It was an airjet, he saw as it neared. 
an egg-shaped machine with stubby wings and a flaring tail. It was flying slowly now, gliding downward toward them. "'Hello there,' bawled Hull. He stood erect with the savage wind tossing his flame-red hair, waving. "'Hello, people!' The machine dove at them, something stabbed from its nose, a line of smoke, tracers. Conditioned reflex swung Saunders to the ground, the bullets whined over his head, exploding with a vicious crush behind him. He saw Hull blown apart. The jet rushed overhead and banked for another assault. Saunders got up and ran, crouching low, weaving back and forth. The line of bullets banged past him again, throwing up gusts of dirt where they hit. He threw himself down again. Another try. Saunders was knocked off his feet by the bursting of a shell. He rolled over and hugged the ground, hoping the grass would hide him. Dimly he thought that the jet was too fast for strafing a single man. It overshot its mark. He heard it whine overhead without daring to look up. It circled vulture-like, seeking him. He had time for a rising tide of bitter hate. Sam, they'd killed him, without provocation. Sam, red-haired Sam with his laughter and his comradeship. Sam was dead and they had killed him. He risked turning over. The jet was settling to earth. They'd hunt him from the ground. He got up and ran again. A shot wailed past his ear. He spun around the pistol in his hand and snapped the return shot. There were men in black uniforms coming out of the jet. It was long-range, but his gun was a heavy war model it carried. He fired again and felt a savage joy at seeing one of the black-clad figures spin on his heels and lurch to the ground. Time machine lay before him, no time for heroics. He had to get away, fast. Bullets were singing around him. He burst through the door and slammed it shut. A slug wanged through the metal wall. Thank God the tubes were still warm. He threw the main switch. His vision wavered. He saw the pursuers almost on him. One of them was aiming something like a bazooka. They faded into grayness. He lay back, shuddering. Slowly he grew more aware that his clothes were torn and that a metal fragment had scratched his hand. And Sam was dead. Sam was dead. He watched the dial creep upward. Let it be 3,000 A.D. Five hundred years was not too much to put between himself and the men in black. It shows nighttime. A cautious look outside revealed that he was among tall buildings with little, if any, light. Good. He spent a few moments bandaging his injury and changing into the extra clothes Eve had insisted on providing, a heavy wool shirt, breeches, boots, and a raincoat that should help make him relatively inconspicuous. The holstered pistol went along, of course, with plenty of extra cartridges. He'd have to leave the machine while he reconnoitered and chance its discovery. At least he could lock the door. Outside he found himself standing in a small cobbled courtyard between high houses with shuttered and darkened windows. Overhead was utter night. The stars must be clouded. And he saw a vague red glow to the north, pulsing and flickering. After a moment he squared his shoulders and started down an alley that was like a cavern of blackness. Briefly the incredible situation rose in his mind. In less than an hour... He had leaped a thousand years past his own age. He had seen his friend murdered, and now stood in an alien city, more alone than man had ever been. And Eve, will I see you again? 
a noiseless shadow blacker than the night slipped past him. The dim light shone greenly from its eyes, and now I can't. The next man still had pets, but he could have wished for a more reassuring one. Noise came from ahead, a bobbing light flashed around the doors of houses, dropped his hand to the slit in his coat to grasp the pistol butt. Black against the narrow skyline, four men came abreast, filling the street. The rhythm of their footfalls was military, a guard of some kind. He looked around for shelter. He didn't want to be taken prisoner by unknowns. No alleys to the side. He sidled backward. A flashlight beam darted ahead, crossed his body, and came back. A voice shouted something harsh and peremptory. Saunders turned and ran. The voice cried again behind him. He heard the slam of boots behind him. Someone blew a horn, raising echoes that hooted between the high, dark walls. A black form grew out of the night. Fingers like steel wires closed on his arm, yanking him from side to side. He opened his mouth, and a hand slipped across it. Before he could recover balance, he was pulled down a flight of stairs in the street. In here, the hissing whisper was taut in his ear, quickly. A door slid open just a crack. They burst through, and the other man closed it behind him. An automatic lock clicked shut. I don't think they fight us, said the man grimly. They better not have. Sanders stared at him. The other man was of medium height with a lithe, slender build, shown by the skin-tight gray clothes under his black cape. There was a gun at one hip, a pouch at the other. His face was sallow with a yellowish tinge, and the hair was shaven. It was a lean, strong face with high cheekbones and narrow jaw, straight nose and flaring nostrils, dark, slant eyes under mesthelian brows. The mouth, wide and self-indulgent, was drawn into a reckless grin that showed sharp white teeth. Some sort of white mongoloid half-breed, Saunders guessed. "'Who are you?' he asked roughly. The stranger surveyed him shrewdly. "'De Galte of Sirtis,' he said at last. "'But you don't belong here.' "'I'll say I don't,' wry humor rose in Saunders. "'Why did you snatch me that way?' You didn't want to fall in de watch's hands, did you? Ask Belgati. Don't ask me why I'd resurrect a stranger. I happened to come out, see you running, figured anybody running from de watch deserved help and pulled you back in. He shrugged. Of course, if you don't want to be helped, get back upstairs. I'll stay here, of course, he said, and thanks for rescuing me. Do not said Belgati. Come, let's have a drink. It was a smoky, low-ceilinged room with a few scarred wooden tables crowded about a small charcoal fire and big barrels in the rear, a tavern of some sort, an underworld hangout. Saunders reflected that he might have done worse. Crooks wouldn't be as finicky about his antecedents as officialdom might be. He could ask his way round, learn. I'm afraid I haven't any money, he said, unless... He pulled a handful of coins from his pocket. Belgati looked sharply at them and drew a whistling breath between his teeth. Then his face smoothed into blankness. "'I'll buy,' he said genially. "'Come, Henley, get us whiskey.' Belgati drew Saunders into a dark corner seat, away from the others in the room. The landlord brought tumblers of rotgut, remotely akin to whiskey. 
and Saunders gulped his with a feeling of need. "'One name do you go by?' asked Belgati. "'Saunders. Martin Saunders.' "'Glad to see you. Now,' Belgati leaned closer, and his voice dropped to a whisper. "'Now, Saunders, when are you from?' Saunders startled. Belgati smiled thinly. "'Be frank,' he said. "'There's me friends here. They'd think knotting a slitting your throat and dumping you in the alley. But I mean well.' With a sudden great weariness, Saunders relaxed. "'What the hell?' Had to come out sometime. Nineteen hundred seventy-three, he said. Eh? The future? No, the past. Oh, different croning, din. How far back? One thousand and twenty-seven years. Elgati whistled. Long ways. But I was sure you must be from the past. Nobody ever come from the future. Sickly. You mean it's impossible? I don't know. Belgati's grin was wolfish. Who'd visit this era for the future, if they could? But was you sorry? Saunders bristled. The whiskey was cursing hot in his veins now. I'll trade information, he said coldly. I won't give it. Fair enough. Blast away. Mountain Saunders. Saunders told his story in a few words. At the end, Belgati nodded gravely. You run into de fanatics five hundred years ago, he said. They were death on time travelers, or on most people, for that matter. But what's happened? What sort of world is this, anyway? Belgati's slurring accents were getting easier to follow. Pronunciation had changed a little. Vowels sounded different. The R had shifted to something like that in the twentieth-century French or Danish. Other consonants were modified. Foreign words, especially Spanish, had crept in, but was still intelligible. Saunders listened. Delgado was not too well versed in history, but his shrewd brain had a grasp of the more important facts. The time of troubles had begun in the twenty-third century with the revolt of the Martian colonists against the increasingly corrupt and tyrannical terrestrial dictate. A century later, the folk of Earth were on the move, driven by famine, pestilence, and civil war, a chaos out of which rose the religious enthusiasm of the Armageddonists, the fanatics, as they were called later, fifty years after the massacres on Luna, Huntley, was a military dictator on Earth, and the rule of the Armageddonists endured for nearly three hundred years. It was a nominal sort of rule. Vast territories were always in revolt, and the planetary colonists were building up a power which kept the fanatics out of space. But whenever they did have control, they ruled with utter ruthlessness. Among other things, they forbade was time travel. But it had never been popular with anyone since the Time War, when a defeated Directorate Army had leaped from the 23rd to the 24th century, and wrought havoc before their attempt at conquest was smashed. Time travelers were few anyway. The future was too precarious. They were apt to be killed or enslaved in one of the more turbulent periods. 
In the late 27th century, the Planetary League and the African dissenters had finally ended fanatic rule. Out of the post-war confusion rose the Pax Africana, and for two hundred years man had enjoyed an era of competitive peace and progress which was wistfully looked back on as a golden age. Indeed, modern chronology dated from the ascension of John Metzel I. Breakdown came through eternal decay and the onslaughts of barbarians from the outer planets. The solar system split into a multitude of small states and even independent cities. It was a hard, brawling period, not without a brilliance of its own, but it was drawing to a close now. "'This is one of the city-states,' said Dalgati. "'Going Way, it's named, founded by Sinese invaders about three centuries ago. It's under the dictatorship of Quasman, now a stubborn old buzzard, who'll no surrender do the armies of the Atlantic Meteor, are out of very gates now. You see, the red glow? That's their projectors working on our energy screen. When they break it down, they take the city and punish it for holding out so long. Nobody looks happy to that day. He added a few remarks about himself. Belgati was of a dying age. A past era of small states who employed mercenaries to fight their battles. Born on Mars, Belgati had hired out for the whole solar system. But the little mercenary companies were hapless before the organized levies of the rising nations, and after the annihilation of his band, Belgati had fled to Earth, where he dragged out a weary existence as thief and assassin. He had little to look forward to. "'Nobody wants a free comrade now,' he said ruefully. "'If de watch don't catch me first, I'll hang when de Atlantics take de city.' Saunders nodded with a certain sympathy. Belgati leaned close, with a gleam in his slant eyes. "'But you can help me, Martin Saunders,' he hissed. "'And help yourself, too.' "'Eh?' Saunders blinked warily at him. Sure, sure. Take me with you out of this damn time. They can't help you here. They know no more about time travel than you do. Most likely, they'll throw you in the Kalamazoo and smash your machine. You have to go on. Take me. Saunders hesitated warily. What did he really know? How much truth was in Belgati's story? How far could he trust? Set me off in some time when a free comrade can fight again. Meanwhile, I'll help. I'm a good man with the gun or vibro dagger. You can't go battling alone into the future. Saunders wondered. But what the hell? It was plain enough that this period was of no use to him. And Bogati had saved him, even if the watch wasn't as bad as he claimed. And, well, he needed someone to talk to, if nothing else. Someone to help him forget Sam Hull and the gulf of centuries separating him from Eve. Decision came. Okay. Wonderful. You'll no be sorry, Martin. Valgati stood up. Come, let's be blasting off. Now? The sooner the better. Someone may find your machine. Damn it, too late. But you'll want to make ready. Say goodbye. Valgati slapped his pouch. All I own is here. Bitterness underlay his reckless laugh. I've none to say goodbye to except my creditors. Come. Half-dazed, Saunders followed him out of the tavern. 
This time-hopping was going too fast for him. He didn't have a chance to adjust. For instance, if he ever got back to his own time, he'd have descendants in this age. At the rate at which lines of descent spread, there would be men in each army who had his own and Eve's blood, warring on each other, without thought of the tenderness which had brought their very beings. But then he remembered warily. He had never considered the common ancestors he might have with men he'd shot out of the sky in the war he once had fought. Men lived in their own times. A brief flash of light ringed with an enormous dark, and it was not in their nature to think beyond that little span of years. He began to realize why time travel had never been common. Belgotti drew him into the tunnel of an alley. They crouched there while four black-caped men of the watch strode past. In the wan red light, Saunders had a glimpse of high cheekbones, half-oriental features. The metallic gleam of guns slung over their shoulders. They made their way to the machine where it lay between lowering houses, crouched in a night of fear and waiting. Elgati laughed again, a soft, joyous ring in the dark. Freedom, he whispered. They crawled into it, and Saunders set the controls for a hundred years ahead. Belgati scowled. Most like the world will be very tame and quiet then, he said. If I get a way to return, said Saunders, I'll carry you on whatever you want to go. Or you could carry me back a hundred years from now, said the warrior. Blast away, then. 3100 A.D. A waste of blackened, fused rock. Saunders switched on the Geiger counter, and it clattered crazily, radioactive. Some hellish atomic bomb had wiped Luing Wai from existence. He leaped another century, shaking, 3200 A.D. The radioactivity was gone, but the desolation remained, a vast, vitrified crater under a hot, still sky, dead and lifeless. There was little prospect of walking across it in search of man, nor did Saunders want to get far from the machine. He could be cut off from it. By 3,500, soil had drifted back over the ruined land, and a forest was growing. They stood in a drizzling rain and looked around them. Big trees, said Saunders. This forest had stood for a long time without human interference. Maybe man went back to de caves, suggested Belgati. I doubt it. Civilization was just too widespread for a lapse into total savagery but it may be a long ways to a settlement. Let's go ahead, then. Belgati's eyes gleamed with interest. The forest stood still for centuries thereafter. Saunders scowled in worry. He didn't like this business of going further and further from his time. He was already too far ahead ever to get back without help. Surely in all ages of human history... At 4100 A.D., they flashed into materialization on a broad, grassy sward, where low, rounded buildings of something that looked like tinted plastic stood between fountains, statues, and bowers. A small aircraft whispered noiselessly overhead, no sign of motive power on its exterior. There were humans around, young men and women, who wore long, colorful capes over light tunics. They crowded forward with a shout. Saunders and Belgati stepped out, raising hands in a gesture of friendship. But the warrior kept his hands close to his gun. 
The language was a flowing musical tongue with only a baffling hint of familiarity. Had times changed that much? They were taken to one of the buildings. Within its cool, spacious interior, a grave-bearded man in ornate red robe stood up to greet them. Someone else brought in a small machine, reminiscent of an oscilloscope with microphone attachments. The man sat on the table and adjusted the dials. He spoke again, his own unknown language rippling from his lips. But words came out of the machine. English. Welcome travelers to this branch of the American College. Please be seated. Saunders and Belcotti gaped. The man smiled. I see the psychophone is new to you. It is a receiver of encephalic emissions from the speech centers. When one speaks, the corresponding thoughts are taken by the machine, greatly amplified and beamed to the brain of the listener, who interprets them in terms of his own language. Permit me to introduce myself. I am Hamilton Ambard, dean of this branch of the college. He raised bushy gray eyebrows in polite inquiry. They gave their names, and Avard bowed ceremoniously. A slim girl, whose scanty dress caused Belgatti's eyes to widen, brought a tray of sandwiches and a beverage not unlike tea. Saunders suddenly realized how hungry and tired he was. He collapsed into a seat that molded itself to his contours and looked dully at Avard. Their story came out, and the dean nodded. "'I thought you were time-travelers,' he said." But this is a matter of great interest. The archaeology department will want to speak with you, if you will be so kind. Can you help us? asked Saunders bluntly. Can you fix our machine so it will reverse? Alas, no. I'm afraid our physics holds no hope for you. I can consult the experts, but I am sure there has been no change in spirotemporal theory since Pirogan's Reformation. According to it, the energy needed to travel into the past increases tremendously with the period covered. The deformation of world lines, you see, beyond a period of about seventy years, infinite energy is required. Saunders nodded dully. I thought so. Then there's no hope? Not in this time, I'm afraid. But science is advancing rapidly. Contact with alien culture in the galaxy has proved an immense stimulant. You have interstellar travel? exploded Belgati. You can travel to the stars? Yes, of course. The faster-than-light drive was worked out over five hundred years ago, on the basis of Pragan's modified relativity theory. It involves warping through higher dimensions. But you have more urgent problems than scientific theories. Nadia, said Belgati fiercely, if I can get put among the stars, de must be wars there. Alas, yes, the rapid expansion of the frontier has thrown the galaxy into chaos. But I do not think you could get passage on a spaceship. In fact, the Council will probably order your temporal deportation as unintegrated individuals. The sanity of Saul will be in danger otherwise. Why, well, yeah, Belgati snarled and reached for his gun. Saunders clapped a hand on the warrior's arm. Take it easy, you bloody fool, he said furiously. We can't fight a whole planet. Why should we? There'll be other ages. Belgate relaxed, but his eyes were still angry. They stayed at the college for two days. Avard and his colleagues were courteous, hospitable, eager to hear what the travelers had to tell of their periods. 
They provided food and living quarters and much-needed rest. They even pleaded Belgati's case to the Solar Council via telescreen, but the answer was inexorable. The galaxy already had too many barbarians. The travelers would have to go. Their batteries were taken out of the machine for them in a small atomic engine, with nearly limitless energy reserves installed in its place. Avard gave them a psychophone for communication with whoever they met in the future. Everyone was very nice and considerate, but Saunders found himself reluctantly agreeing with Belgati. He didn't care much for these over-civilized gentlefolk. He didn't belong in this age. Avard bade them a grave goodbye. It is strange to see you go, he said. It is a strange thought that you will still be traveling long after my cremation, that you will see things I cannot dream of. Briefly, something stirred in his face. In a way, I envy you. He turned away quickly, as if afraid of the thought. Goodbye and good fortune. 4300 A.D. The campus buildings were gone, but small, elaborate summer houses had replaced them. Youths and girls in scanty rainbow-hued dresses crowded around the machine. "'You're time-travelers?' asked one of the young men, wide-eyed. Saunders nodded, feeling too tired for speech. "'Time-travelers!' a girl squealed in delight. "'I don't suppose you have any means of traveling into the past these days?' asked Saunders hopelessly. "'Not that I know of. Please, come, stay for a while. Tell us about your journeys.' This is the biggest lark we've had since the ship came from Cirrus. There was no denying the eager insistence. The women in particular crowded around, circling them in a ring of soft arms, laughing and shouting and pulling them away from the machine. Belgotti grinned. Let's stay tonight, he suggested. Saunders didn't feel like arguing the point. There was time enough, he thought bitterly. All the time in the world. It was a night of revelry. Saunders managed to get a few facts. Saul was a galactic backwater these days, stuffed with mercantile wealth and guarded by non-human mercenaries against the interstellar raiders and conquerors. This region was one of many playgrounds for the children of great merchant families, living for generations off inherited riches. They were amiable kids, but there was a mental and physical softness over them, and a deep inward weariness from a meaningless round of increasingly stale pleasure. Decadence. Saunders finally sat alone under a moon that glittered with the diamond points of domed cities, beside a softly lapping artificial lake, and watched the constellations wheel overhead, the far suns that man had conquered without mastering himself. He thought of Eve, and wanted to cry but the hollowness in his breast was dry and cold. Chapter 3 Trapped in the Time Stream Belgotti had a thumping hangover in the morning, which a drink offered by one of the women removed. He argued for a while about staying in this age. Nobody would deny him passage this time. They were eager for fighting men out in the galaxy, but the fact that Saul was rarely visited now that he might have to wait years, finally decided him on continuing. "'This won't go on much longer,' he said. "'Saul is too tempting a prize, and mercenaries aren't always loyal. Sooner or later, there'll be war on earth again.' Saunders nodded dispiritedly. He hated to think of the blasting energies that would devour a peaceful and harmless folk. 
the looting and murdering and enslaving. But history was that way. It was littered with the graves of pacifists. The bright scene swirled into grayness. They drove ahead. 4400 A.D. A villa was burning, smoke and flame reaching up into the clouded sky. Behind it stood the looming bulk of a ray-scarred spaceship, and around it boiled a vortex of men, huge bearded men in helmets and cuirasses, laughing as they bore out golden loot and struggling captives. The barbarians had come. The two travelers leaped back into the machine. Those weapons could fuse it to a glowing mass. Saunders swung the main drive switch far over. We'd better make a longer jump, Saunders said, as the needle crept past the sentry mark. Can't look for much scientific progress in a dark age. I'll try 5,000 A.D. His mind carried the thought on. Will there ever be progress of the sort we must have? Eve, will I ever see you again? As if his yearning could carry over the abyss of millennia. Don't mourn me too long, my dearest. In all the bloody ages of human history, your happiness is all that ultimately matters. As the needle approached six centuries, Saunders tried to ease down the switch. Tried. What's the matter? Elgati leaned over his shoulder. With a sudden cold sweat along his ribs, Saunders tugged harder. The switch was immobile. The projector wouldn't stop. Out of order? asked Belgati anxiously. No. It's the automatic mass detector. We'd be annihilated if we emerged in the same place with solid matter. The detector prevents the projector from stopping if it senses such a structure. Saunders grinned savagely. Some damned idiot must have built a house right over where we are. The needle passed its limit, and still they droned on through a featureless grayness. Saunders reset the dial and noted the first half-millennium. It was nice, though not necessary, to know what year it was when they emerged. He wasn't worried at first. Man's works were so horribly impermanent. He thought with a sadness the cities and civilizations he had seen rise and spend their little hour and sink back into the night and chaos of time. But after a thousand years, two thousand, three thousand, Belgatti's face was white and tense in the dull glow of the instrument panel. How long to go? he whispered. I don't know. Within the machine, the long minutes passed while the projector hummed its song of power and the two men stared with hypnotized fascination at the creeping record of centuries. For twenty thousand years that incredible thing stood. In the year 25-296 A.D., the switch suddenly went down under Saunders' steady tug. The machine flashed into reality, tilted and slid down a few feet before coming to rest. Wildly, they opened the door. The projector lay on a stone block, big as a small house, whose ultimate slipping from its place had freed them. It was halfway up a pyramid. A monument of gray stone. A tetrahedron a mile to a side and a half-mile high. The outer casing had worn away or been removed, so that the tremendous block stood naked to the weather. Soil had drifted up onto it. Grass and trees grew on its titanic slopes. Their roots and wind and rain and frost were slowly crumbling the artificial hill to earth again, but still it dominated the landscape. A defaced carving leered out from a tangle of brush. Saunders looked at it and looked away, shuddering. No human being had ever carved that thing. 
The countryside around it was altered. He couldn't see the old river, and there was a lake glimmering in the distance which had not been there before. The hills seemed lower, and forest covered them. It was a wild, primeval scene. But there was a spaceship standing near the base, a monster machine with its nose rearing skyward and a sunburst blazing on its hull. And there were men working nearby. Saunders' shout rang in the still air. He and Belgati scrambled down the steep slopes of earth, clawing past trees and vines. Men! No, not all men. A dozen great shining engines were toiling without supervision at the foot of the pyramid. Robots. And of the group which turned to stare at the travelers, two were squat, blue-furred, with snouted faces and six-fingered hands. Saunders realized, with an unexpectedly eerie shock, that he was seeing extraterrestrial intelligence. But it was to the men that he faced. They were tall, with aristocratically refined features, and a calm that seemed inbred. Their clothing was impossible to describe. It was like a rainbow shimmering around them, never the same in its play of color and shape. So thought Saunders, so must the old gods have looked on high Olympus, beings greater and more beautiful than man. But it was a human voice that called to them a deep, well-modulated tone in a totally foreign language. Saunders remembered exasperatedly that he had forgotten the psychophone, but one of the blue-furred aliens were already fetching a round, knob-studded globe, out of which the familiar translating voice seemed to come. Time travelers. From the very remote past, obviously, said another man. Damn him. Damn them all. They weren't any more excited than the bird which rose, startled from the long grass. You'd think time travelers would at least be worth shaking by the hand. Listen, snapped Sanders, realizing in the back of his mind that his annoyance was a reaction against the awesomeness of the company. We're in trouble. Our machine won't carry us back, and we need to find a period in time which knows how to reverse the effect. Can you do it? One of the aliens shook his animal head. No, he said. There is no way known to physics of getting further back than about seventy years. Beyond that, the required energy approaches infinity and... Saunders groaned. We know it, said Belgati harshly. At least you must rest, said one of the men in a more kindly tone. It will be interesting to hear your story. I have told it to too many people in the last few millennia, rasped Saunders. Let's hear yours for a change. Two of the strangers exchanged low-voiced words. Saunders could almost translate them himself. Barbarians, childish, emotional pattern. Well, humor them for a while. This is an archaeological expedition excavating the pyramid, said one of the men patiently. We are from the Galactic Institute, Sarlan Sector Branch. I am Lord Arstwell of Astrasar, and these are my subordinates. The non-humans, as you may wish to know, are from the planet Qualhan, whose sun is not visible from Terra. Despite himself, Saunders' awed gaze turned to the stupendous mass looming over them. Who built it? he breathed. The Exoli made such structures on planets they conquered. No one knows why. But then no one knows what they were, or where they came from, or where they ultimately went. It is hoped that some of the answers may be found in their pyramids. The atmosphere grew more relaxed. Deftly, the men of the expedition got Saunders and Belgati's stories. 
and what information about their almost prehistoric periods they cared for. In exchange, something of history was offered them. After the Exchulis' ruinous wars, the galaxy had made a surprisingly rapid comeback. New techniques of mathematical psychology made it possible to unite the peoples of a billion worlds and rule them effectively. The Galactic Empire was egalitarian. It had to be. For one of its mainstays was the fantastically old and evolved race of the planet called Vrohai by men. It was peaceful, prosperous, colorful, with diversity of races and cultures, expanding in science and the arts. It had already endured for ten thousand years, and there seemed no doubt in Arsfeld's calm mind that it could endure forever. The barbarians along the galactic periphery and out in the Magellanic clouds. Nonsense. The Empire would get around to civilizing them in due course. Meanwhile, they were only a nuisance. But Saul could almost be called one of the barbarian sons, though it lay within the imperial boundaries. Civilization was concentrated near the center of the galaxy, and Saul lay in what was actually a remote and thinly starred region of space. A few primitive landsmen still lived on its planets and had infrequent intercourse with the nearer stars. But they hardly counted. The human race had almost forgotten its ancient home. Somehow the picture was saddening to the American. He thought of old Earth spinning on her lonely way through the emptiness of space. He thought of the great arrogant empire, that of all the mighty dominions which had fallen to dust through the millennia. But when he ventured to suggest that this civilization, too, was not immortal, he was immediately snowed under with figures, facts, logic, the curious paramathematical symbolism of modern mass psychology. It could be shown rigorously that the present setup was inherently stable, and already ten thousand years of history had given no evidence to upset that science. I give up, said Saunders. I can't argue with you. They were shown through the spaceship's immense interior, the luxurious apartments of the expedition, the looming intricate machinery, which did its own thinking. Arsfeld tried to show them his art, his recorded music, his psycho books, but it was no use. They didn't have the understanding. Savages! Could an Australian aborigine have approached Rembrandt, Beethoven, Kant, or Einstein? Could he have lived happily in sophisticated New York society? We'd best go, muttered Bugatti. We don't belong here. Saunders nodded. Civilization had gone too far for them. They could never be more than frightened pensioners in this hugeness. Best to get on their way again. I would advise you to leap ahead for long intervals, said Arsfeld. Galactic civilization won't have spread out this far for many thousands of years. And certainly, whatever native culture Saul develops won't be able to help you, he smiled. It doesn't matter if you overshoot the time when the process you need is invented. The records won't be lost, I assure you. From here on, you are certain of encountering only peace and enlightenment. Unless, of course, the barbarians of Terra get hostile, and then... You can always leave them behind. Sooner or later there will be true civilization here to help you. Tell me honestly, said Saunders. Do you think the negative time machine will ever be invented? One of the beings from Kulhan shook his strange head. I doubt it, he said gravely. We would have had visitors from the future. 
They might not have cared to see your time, argued Saunders desperately. They'd have complete records of it, so they'd go back to investigate more primitive ages where their appearance might easily pass unnoticed. You may be right, said Arsfeld. His tone was disconcertingly like that with which an adult confronts a child by a white lie. Let's go, snarled Belgati. In twenty-six thousand the forest still stood, and the pyramid had become a high hill where trees nodded and rustled in the wind. In twenty-seven thousand a small village of wood and stone houses stood among smiling grain fields. In twenty-eight thousand men were tearing down the pyramid, quarrying it for stone. But its huge bulk was not gone before thirty thousand A.D., and a small city had been built from it. Minutes ago, thought Saunders gravely, they had been talking to Lord Arsfell of Ashtar, and now he was five thousand years in his grave. In thirty-one thousand they materialized on one of the broad lawns that reached between the towers of a high and proud city. Aircraft swarmed overhead, and a spaceship, small besides Arsfell's, but nonetheless impressive, was standing nearby. Looked like the Empire got here, said Delgatti. I don't know, said Saunders, but it looks peaceful anyway. Let's go out and talk to people. They were received by tall, stately women in white robes of classic lines. It seemed that the matriarchy now ruled Saul, and would they please conduct themselves as befitted the inferior sex? No, the Empire had never gotten out here. Saul paid tribute and there was an imperial legate at Sirius. But the actual boundaries of galactic culture hadn't changed for the past three millennia. Solar civilization was strictly homegrown and obviously superior to the alien influence of the Rohai. No, nothing was known about time theory. Their visit had been welcome and all that, but now would they please go on? They didn't fit in with the neatly regulated culture of Terra. I don't like it, said Saunders as they walked back toward the machine. Arsfell swore the Imperium would keep expanding its actual as well as its normal sphere of influence. But it's gone static now. Why? I think, said Bugatti, that spite of all his fancy mathematics, you were right. Nothing lasts forever. But, my God! Chapter 4 End of Empire 34,000 A.D. The matriarchy was gone. The city was a tumbled heap of fire-blackened rocks. Skeletons lay in the ruins. The barbarians are moving again, said Saunders bleakly. They weren't here so very long ago. Those bones are still fresh. And they've got a long ways to go to dead center. An empire like this one will be many thousands of years in dying. But it's doomed already. What'll we do? asked Belgati. Go on, said Sanders tonelessly. What else can we do? Thirty-five thousand A.D. A peasant hut stood under huge old trees. Here and there a broken column stuck out of the earth, remnant of the old city. A bearded man in coarsely woven garments fled wildly with his woman and boot of children as the machine appeared. 36,000 A.D. There was a village again with a battered old spaceship standing hard by. There were half a dozen different races, including man, moving about working on the construction of some enigmatic machine. 
They were dressed in plain shabby clothes, with guns at their sides and the hard look of warriors in their eyes. But they didn't treat the new arrivals too badly. Their chief was a young man in the cape and helmet of an officer of the Empire. But his outfit was at least a century old, and he was simply head of a small troop which had been hired from among the barbarian hordes to protect this part of Terra. Oddly, he insisted, he was a loyal vassal of the Emperor. The Empire. It was still a remote glory, out there among the stars. Slowly it waned. Slowly the barbarians encroached while corruption and civil war tore it apart from the inside. But it was still the pathetic, futile hope of intelligent beings throughout the galaxy. Some day it would be restored. Some day civilization would return to the darkness of the outer worlds, greater and more splendid than ever. Men dared not believe otherwise. But we've got a job right here, shrugged the chief. Tatho of Cirrus will be on Saul's necks again. I doubt if we can stand him off for long. What do you do then? challenged Belgati. The young, old face twisted in a bitter smile. Die, of course. What else is there to do these days? They stayed overnight with the troopers. Belgati had fun swapping lies about warlike exploits but in the morning he decided to go on with Sanders. The age was violent enough, but its hopelessness daunted even his tough soul. Saunders looked haggardly at the control panel. Got to go a long ways ahead, he said. A hell of a long ways. Fifty thousand A.D. They flashed out of the time drive and opened the door. A raw wind caught at them, driving thin sheets of snow before it. The sky hung low and gray over a landscape of high rocky hills where pine trees stood gloomily between naked crags. There was ice on the river that murmured darkly out of the woods. Geology didn't work that fast. Even fourteen thousand years wasn't a very long time to the slowly changing planets. It must have been the work of intelligent beings, ravaging and scoring the world with senseless wars and unbelievable forces. A gray stone mass dominated the landscape. It stood enormous a few miles off its black walls, sprawling over incredible acres, its massive crenellated towers reaching gauntly into the sky. And it lay half in ruin, torn and tumbled stone, distorted by energies that once made rock run molten, blurred by uncounted millennia of weather old. Dead. Saunders' voice was thin under the hooting wind. All dead. No. Elgati's slant eyes squinted against the flying snow. No, Martin. I think I see a banner flying. The wind blew bitterly around them, searing them with its chill. Shall we go on? asked Saunders dully. Best we go find out what's happened, said Belgati. They can do no worse than kill us and I begin to think that's not so bad. Saunders put on all the clothes he could find and took the psychophone in one chilled hand. Belgati wrapped his cloak tightly around him. They started toward the gray edifice. The wind blew and blew. Snow hissed around them, covering the tough gray-green vegetation that hugged the stony ground. Summer on Earth. 
50,000 A.D. As they neared the structure, its monstrous size grew on them. Some of the towers which still stood must be almost half a mile high, thought Saunders dizzily. But it had a grim, barbaric look. No civilized race had ever built such a fortress. Two small, swift shapes darted into the air from the cliff-like wall. Aircraft, said Belgati laconically. The wind ripped the word from his mouth. They were a vodio, without external controls or windows, apparently running on the gravantic forces which had long ago been tamed. One of them hovered overhead, covering the travelers, while the other dropped to the ground. As it landed, Saunders saw it was old and worn and scarred. But there was a faded sunburst on its side. Some memory of the Empire must still be alive. Two came out of the little vessel and approached the travelers with guns in their hands. One was human, a tall, well-built young man with shoulder-length black hair, blowing under a tarnished helmet, a patched purple coat streaming from his creat shoulders, a faded leather kilt and buskins. The other? He was a little shorter than the man, but immensely broad of chest and limb. Four muscled arms grew from the massive shoulders, and a tufted tail lashed against his clawed feet. His head was big, broad-skulled, with a round, half-animal face and cat-like whiskers about the fanged mouth and the split-pupiled yellow eyes. He wore no clothes except a leather harness, but soft blue-gray fur covered the whole great body. The psychophone clattered out the man's hail. Who comes? Friends, said Saunders. We wish only shelter and a little information. Where are you from? There was a harsh, peremptory note in the man's voice, his face, straight, thin-boned. The countenance of a highly bred aristocrat was gaunt with strain. What do you want? What sort of spaceship is that you've got down there? Easy, Vargor, rumbled the alien's bass. That's no spaceship. You can see that. No, said Saunders. It's a time projector. Time travelers. Vargor's intense blue eyes widened. I heard of such things once, but time travelers? Suddenly, where are you from? Can you help us? We're from very long ago, said Saunders pityingly, and I'm afraid we're alone and helpless. Vargor's erect carriage sagged a little. He looked away. But the other being stepped forward with an eagerness in him. How far back? he asked. Where are you going? We're going to hell, most likely. But can you get us inside? We're freezing. Of course, come with us. You'll not take it amiss if I send a squad to inspect your machine. We have to be careful, you know. The force squeezed into the aircraft, and it lifted with a groan of ancient engines. Vargor gestured at the fortress ahead, and his tone was a little wild. Welcome to the hold of Brothnor. Welcome to the Galactic Empire. The Empire? Aye, this is the Empire, or what's left of it. A haunted fortress on a frozen ghost world. Last fragment of the old Imperium and still trying to pretend that the galaxy is not dying, that it didn't die millennia ago, that there is something left besides wild beasts howling among the ruins. 
Fargore's throat caught in a dry sob. Welcome. The alien laid a huge hand on the man's shoulder. Don't get hysterical, Vargor, he reproved gently. As long as brave beings hope the Empire is still alive, whatever they say. He looked over his shoulder at the others. You really are welcome, he said. It's a hard and dreary life we lead here. Tari and the Dreamer will both welcome you gladly, he paused, then unsurely. But best you don't say too much about the ancient time. If you've really seen it, we can't bear too sharp a reminder, you know. The machine slipped down beyond the wall, over a gigantic flag courtyard, to the monster bulk of the... the dungeon, Saunders supposed one would call it. It rose up in several tiers, with pathetic little gardens on the terraces toward a dome of clear plastic. The walls, he saw, were immensely thick with weapons mounted on them which he could see clearly through the drifting snow. Behind the dungeon stood several long barracks-like buildings, and a couple of spaceships which must have been held together by pure faith rested near what looked like an arsenal. There were guards on duty, helmeted men with energy rifles, their cloaks wrapped tightly against the wind, and other folk scurried around under monstrous walls, men and women and children. There's Tauri, said the alien, pointing to a small group clustered on one of the terraces. We may as well land right there. His wide mouth opened in an alarming smile. And forgive me for not introducing myself before. I'm Hunda of Hamagar, general of the Imperial Armies, and this is Vargor Alfri, prince of the Empire. You crazy? blurted Bugatti. What empire? Hunter shrugged. It's a harmless game, isn't it? At that you know we are the Empire, legally. Tare is a direct descendant of Mokro the Doomer, last emperor to be anointed according to the proper forms. Of course, that was five thousand years ago. And Mirko had only three systems left then, but the law is clear. These hundred or more barbarian pretenders, human and otherwise, haven't the shadow of a real claim to the title. The vessel grounded, and they stepped out. The others waited for them to come up. There were half a dozen old men, their long beards blowing wildly in the gale. There was a being with the face of a long-beaked bird, and one that had the shape of a centauroid. The court of the Empress Tauri, said Hunda. Welcome. The answer was low and gracious. Saunders and Belgati stared dumbly at her. She was tall, tall as a man, but under her tunic of silver links and her furred cloak, she was such a woman as they had dreamed of without ever knowing in life. Her proudly lifted head had something of Vigor's looks, the same clean-lined, high-cheeked face. But it was the countenance of a woman, from the broad, clear brow to the wide, wondrously chiseled mouth and the strong chin. The cold had flushed the lovely pale panes of her cheeks. Her heavy bronze-red hair was braided about her helmet, with one rebellious lock tumbling softly toward the level dark brows. Her eyes huge and oblique, and gray as northern seas. 
were serene on them. Saunders found tongue. Thank you, Your Majesty, he said in a firm voice. If it please you, I am Martin Saunders of America, some forty-eight thousand years in the past, and my companion is Belgotti, free companion from Sirtis. About a thousand years later, we are at your service, what little we may be able to do. She inclined her stately head, and her sudden smile was warm and human. It is a rare pleasure, she said. Come inside, please, and forget the formality. Tonight, let us simply be alive. They sat in what had been a small council chamber. The great hall was too huge and empty. A cavern of darkness and rustling relics of greatness, hollow with too many memories. But the lesser room had been made livable, hung with tapestries and carpeted with skins. Floral tubes cast a white light over it, and a fire cracked cheerfully in the hearth. Had it not been for the wind against the windows, they might have forgotten where they were. And you can never go back. Tari's voice was sober. You can never get home again. I don't think so, said Saunders. From our story, it doesn't look that way, does it? No, said Hunda. You'd better settle down in some time and make the best of matters. Why not with us? asked Vargor eagerly. We'd welcome you with all our hearts, said Tory. But I cannot honestly advise you to stay. These are evil times. It was a harsh language they spoke, a ringing metallic tongue brought in by the barbarians. But from her throat, Saunders thought it was utter music. We'll at least stay a few days, he said impulsively. It's barely possible we can do something. I doubt that, said Hunda practically. We've retrogressed, yes. For instance, the principle of the time projector was lost long ago. But still, there's a lot of technology left, which was far beyond your own times. I know, said Saunders defensively. But, well, frankly, we haven't fitted in any other time as well. Will there ever be a decent age again? asked one of the old courtiers bitterly. The avian from Kalkahar turned his eyes on Saunter. It wouldn't be cowardice for you to leave a lost cause which you couldn't possibly aid, he said in his thin, accented tones. When the Anarvati come, I think we will all die. What is the tale of the dreamer? asked Belgati. You've mentioned some such. It was like a sudden darkness in the room. There was silence under the whistling wind, and men sat wrapped in their own cheerless thoughts. Finally, Tory spoke. He is the last of the Rohai counselors of the Empire. That one still lives, the dreamer. But there can never really be another Empire, at least not on the pattern of the old one. No other race is intelligent enough to coordinate it. Hunda shook his big head, puzzled. The dreamer once told me that might be for the best, he said, but he wouldn't explain. How did you happen to come here, to Earth, of all planets? Saunders asked. Tory smiled with a certain grim humor. The last four generations have been one of the Imperium's less fortunate periods, she said. In short, the most the Emperor ever commanded was a small fleet 
My father had even that shot away from him. He fled with three ships out toward the periphery. It occurred to him that Saul was worth trying as a refuge. The solar system had been cruelly scarred in the Dark Ages. The great engineering works which had made the other planets habitable were ruined, and Earth herself had been laid waste. There had been a weapon used which consumed atmospheric carbon dioxide. Saunders, remembering the explanation for the Ice Ages, offered by geologists of his own time, nodded in dark understanding. Only a few starving savages lived on the planet now, and indeed the whole Cirrus sector was so desolated that no conqueror thought it worth bothering with. It had pleased the Emperor to make his race's ancient home the capital of the galaxy. He had moved into the ruined fortress of Bronthor, built some seven thousand years ago by the non-human Grimani, and blasted out of action a millennium later. Renovations of parts of it, installation of weapons and defensive works, institution of agriculture. Why, he had suddenly acquired a whole planetary system— said Tari with a half-sad smile. She took them down into the underground levels the next day to see the dreamer. Vargor went along, too, walking close behind her, but Hunda stayed topside. He was busy supervising the construction of additional energy screen generators. They went through immense vaulted caverns hewed out of the rock, dank tunnels of silence where their footfalls echoed weirdly and shadows flitted beyond the dull glow of fluorospheres. Now and then they passed a looming monstrous bulk, the corroded hulk of some old machine. The night and loneliness weighed heavily on them. They huddled together and did not speak for fear of rousing the jeering echoes. "'There were slideways here once,' remarked Tauri, as they started. "'But we haven't gotten around to installing new ones.' There's too much else to do. Too much else. A civilization to rebuild with these few broken remnants. How can they dare even to keep trying in the face of the angry gods? What sort of courage is it they have? Tauri walked ahead with the long swinging stride of a warrior, a red lioness of a woman in the wavering shadows. Her gray eyes caught the light with a supernatural brilliance. Vargor kept pace, but he lacked her steadiness. His gaze shifted nervously from side to side as they moved down the haunted, booming length of the tunnels. Belgati went cat-footed. His own restless eyes had merely the habitual wariness of his hard and desperate lifetime. Again Saunders thought, what a strange company they were. Four humans from the dawn and the dusk of human civilization, thrown together at the world's end, and walking to greet the last of the gods. His past life, Eve, MacPherson, the world of his time, were dimming in his mind. They were too remote from his present reality. It seemed as if he had never been anything but a follower of the Galactic Empress. They came at last to a door. Torrey knocked softly and swung it open. Yes, they were even back to manual doors now. Saunders had been prepared for almost anything, but nonetheless the appearance of the dreamer was a shock. He had imagined a grave, white-bearded man, or a huge, skulled spider-thing, or a naked brain pulsing in a machine-tended case. But the last of the Vrohai was a monster. No, not exactly. 
Not when you discarded human standards. Then he even had a weird beauty of his own. The gross bulk of him sheened with iridescence, and his many seven-fingered hands were supple and graceful. And the eyes, the eyes, were huge pools of molten gold. Lambent and wise, a stare too brilliant to meet directly. He stood up on his stumpy legs as they entered, barely four feet high, though the head-body unit was broad and massive, and the psychophone remained silent. But as the long, delicate feelers pointed toward him, Saunders thought he heard words, a deep organ voice, rolling soundless through the still air. Greeting, Your Majesty. Greeting, Your Highness. Greeting, men out of time, and welcome. Telepathy, direct telepathy. So that was how it felt. Thank you, sir. Somehow the thing rated the title. Rated an odd respect to match his own grave formality. But I thought you were in a trance of concentration till now. How did you know? Saunders' voice trailed off, and he flushed with sudden distaste. No, traveler, I did not read your mind as you think. The Brohai always respected privacy, and did not read any thoughts save those contained in speech addressed solely to them. But my induction was obvious. What were you thinking about in the last trance? asked Fargor. His voice was sharp with strain. Did you reach any plan? No, your highness, vibrated the dreamer. As long as the factors involved remain constant, we cannot logically do otherwise than we are doing. When new data appear, I will reconsider immediate necessities. No, I was working further on the philosophical basis which the Second Empire must have. But Second Empire sneered Fogler bitterly. The one which will come some day, answered Tory quietly. The dreamer's wise eyes rested on Saunders and Bogarty. With your permission, he thought, I would like to scan your complete memory patterns, conscious, subconscious, and cellular. We know so little of your age. As they hesitated, I assure you, sirs, that a non-human being half a million years old can keep secrets, and certainly does not pass moral judgments. And the scanning will be necessary, anyway, if I am to teach you the present language. Saunders braced himself. Go ahead, he said distastefully. For a moment he felt dizzy, a haze passed over his eyes, and there was an eerie thrill among every nerve of him. Tari laid an arm about his waist, bracing him. It passed. Saunders shook his head, puzzled. Is that all? Aye, sir. A Rohai brain can scan an infinite number of units simultaneously, with a faint hint of a chuckle. But did you notice that tongue you just spoke in? Eh, uh, huh? Saunders looked wildly at Tari's smiling face. The hard, open-voweled syllables barked from his mouth. I, by the gods, I can speak Stellarian now. I, thought the dreamer, the language centers are peculiarly receptive. It is easy to impress a pattern on them. The method of instruction will not work so well for information involving other faculties, but you must admit it is a convenient and efficient way to learn speech. Last off with me, then, said Bulgatti cheerfully. I always was a dumb cough at languages. When the dreamer was through, he thought, 
you will not take it amiss if I tell all that what I saw in your minds was good, brave and honest. Under the little neurosis which all beings at your level of evolution cannot help accumulating, I will be pleased to remove those for you, if you wish. No, thanks, said Belgardi. I like my little neuroses. I see that you are debating staying here, went on the dreamer. You will be valuable, but you should be fully warned of the desperate position we actually are in. This is not a pleasant age in which we live. From what I have seen, answered Saunders slowly, golden ages are only superficially better. They may be easier on the surface, but there's death in them. To travel, hopefully, believe me, is better than to arrive. That has been true in all past ages, I. It was the great mistake of the Viral High. We should have known better with ten million years of civilization behind us. There was a deep and tragic note in the rolling thought pulse. But we thought that since we had achieved a static physical state in which the new frontiers and challenges lay within our own minds, all beings at all levels of evolution could and should have developed in them the same ideal. With our help, and with the use of scientific psychodynamics and the great cybernetic engines, the coordination of a billion planets became possible. It was perfection, in a way. But perfection is death to imperfect beings, and even the Brohai had many shortcomings. I cannot explain all the philosophy to you. It involves concepts you could not fully grasp. But you have seen the workings of the great laws and the rise and fall of cultures. I have proved rigorously that permanence is a self-contradictory concept. There can be no goal to reach, not ever. Then the Second Empire will have no better hope than decay and chaos again. Saunders grinned humorously. Why the devil do you want one? Fargor's harsh laugh shattered the brooding silence. What indeed does it matter? he cried. What use to plan the future of the universe when we are outlaws on a forgotten planet? The Anvardi are coming. He sobered and there was a set to his jaw which Saunder liked. "'They're coming, and there's little we can do to stop it,' said Vargor. "'But we'll give them a fight. We'll give them such a fight as the poor old galaxy never saw before.'" Chapter 5 Attack of the Anvardi "'Oh, no! Oh, no! Oh, no!' The murmur came unnoticed from Varger's lips, a broken cry of pain as he stared at the image which flickered and wavered on the great interstellar communist screen. And there was horror in the eyes of Tori, grimness to the set of Hunda's mighty jaws, a sadness of many hopeless centuries in the golden gaze of the dreamer. After weeks of preparation and waiting, Saunders realized matters were at last coming to a head. Aye, your majesty, said the man in the screen. He was haggard, exhausted, worn out by strain and struggle and defeat. Aye, fifty-four shiploads of us, and the Anvardian fleet in pursuit. How far behind, rapped Hunda. About half a light year, sir, and coming up slowly. We'll be close to Saul before they can overhaul us. Can you fight them, rapped Hunda. No, sir said the man. 
were loaded with refugees, women and children and unarmed peasants, hardly a gun on the ship. Can you help us? It was a cry torn by the ripping static that filled the interstellar void. Can't you help us, Your Majesty? They'll sell us for slaves. How did it happen? asked Tory wearily. I don't know, Your Majesty. We heard you were at Saul through our agents, and secretly gathered ships. We don't want to be under the Anvardi Empress. They tax the life from us, and conscript our men, and take our women and children. We only communicated by ultrawave. It can't be traced. And we used our code your agents gave us. But we passed Canopus. They called on us to surrender in the name of their king. And they have a whole war fleet after us. How long before they get here? asked Kunda. At this rate, sir, perhaps a week, answered the captain of the ship. Static snarled through his words. Well, keep on coming this way, said Tari wearily. We'll send ships against him. You may get away during the battle. Don't go to Saul, of course. We'll have to evacuate that. Our men will try to contact you later. We aren't worth it, Your Majesty. Save all your ships. They're coming, said Tari flatly, and broke the circuit. She turned to the others, and her red head was still lifted. Most of our people can get away, she said. They can flee into the Arloth cluster. The enemy won't be able to find them in that wilderness. She smiled, a tired little smile that tugged at one corner of her mouth. They'll know what to do. We've planned against this day. Mundador, Pulse, Michael, start readying for evacuation. Hunda, you and I will have to plan our assault. We'll want to make it as effective as possible, but use a minimum of ships. Why sacrifice fighting strength uselessly? asked Belgate. It won't be useless. We'll delay the Anvardi and give those refugees a chance to escape. If we had weapons, rumbled Hunda, his huge fist clenched. By the gods, if we had decent weapons. The dreamer stiffened, and before he could vibrate it, the same thought had leaped into Saunders' brain, and they stared at each other, man and Rohan, with a sudden wild hope. Space glittered and flared with a million stars, thronging against the tremendous dark. The Milky Way foamed around the sky in a rush of cold silver, and it was shattering to a human in its utter immensity. Saunders felt the loneliness of it as he had never felt it on the trip to Venus, for Saul was dwindling behind them. They were rushing out into the void between the stars. There had only been time to install the new weapon on the dreadnought. Time and faculties were so cruelly short. There had been no chance even to test it in maneuvers. They might perhaps have leaped back into time again and again, gaining weeks, but the shops of Terra could only turn out so much material in the one week they did have. So it was necessary to risk the whole fleet and the entire fighting strength of Saul on this one desperate gamble. If the old vengeance could do her part, the outnumbered Imperials would have their chance, but if they failed... Saunders stood on the bridge, looking out at the stellar host, trying to discern the Anvardian fleet. The detectors were far over scale. The enemy was close. 
but you couldn't visually detect something that outran its own image. Unda was at the control central, bent over the cracked old dials and spinning the corroded signal wheels, trying to coax another centimeter per second from a ship more ancient than the pyramids had been in Saunders' day. The dreamer stood quietly in a corner, staring raptly out at the galaxy. The others at the court were each in charge of a squadron. Saunders had talked to them over the intership busy-screen. Vargor, white-lipped, intense. Belgadia, blasphemously cheerful, the rest showing only cruel reserve. "'In a few minutes,' said Tori, quietly. "'In just a few minutes, Martin.' She paced back from the viewport, lithe and restless as a tigress. The cold white starlight glittered in her eyes. A red cloak swirled about the strong, deep curves of her body. A sunburst helmet sat proudly on her bronze-bright hair. Saunders thought how beautiful she was. By all the gods, how beautiful. She smiled at him. It is your doing, Martin, she said. You came from the past just to bring us hope. It's enough to make one believe in destiny. She took his hand. But of course, it's not the hope you wanted. This won't get you back home. Doesn't matter, he said. It does, Martin. But may I say it? I'm still glad of it. Not only for the sake of the Empire, but... A voice rattled over the bridge communicator. Ultra wave to bridge... The enemy is sending us a message, Your Majesty. Shall I send it up to you? Of course. Tauri switched on the bridge screen. A face leaped into it, strong and proud and ruthless, the sunburst shining in the green hair. Greeting, Tauri of Saul, said the Anvardian. I am Ruthlan, Emperor of the Galaxy. I know who you are, said Tauri thinly. But I don't recognize your assumed title. Our detectors report your approach with a fleet approximately one-tenth the size of ours. You have a supernova ship, of course, but so do we. Unless you wish to come to terms, it will be annihilation. What are your terms? Surrender, execution of the criminals who led the attacks on the Arnvardian planets, and your own Pledge of Allegiance to me as Galactic Emperor. The voice was clipped steel-hard. Tari turned away in disgust. Saunders told Ruthen in explicit language what to do with his terms, and then cut off the screen. Tari gestured to the newly installed time-drive controls. Take them, Martin, she said. They're yours, really. She put her hands in his and looked at him with serious gray eyes. And if we should fail in this, goodbye, Martin. Goodbye, he said thickly. He wrenched himself over the panel and sat down before its few dials. Here goes nothing. He waved one hand, and Hunda cut off the hyperdrive. At low intrinsic velocity, the vengeance hung in space while the invisible ships of her fleet flashed past toward the oncoming Anvarde. Slowly then, Saunders brought down the time-drive switch, and the ship roared with power. Atomic energy flowed into the mighty circuits, which they had built to carry her huge mass through time. The lights dimmed. The giant machine throbbed and pulsed. 
and a featureless grayness swirled beyond the ports. He took her back three days. They lay in empty space. The Anvarde were still fantastic distances away. His eyes strayed to the brilliant yellow spark of Saul. Right there, this minute, he was sweating his heart out, installing the time projector which had just carried him back. But no, that was meaningless. Simultaneity was arbitrary. And there was a job to do right now. The chief astrologer's voice came with a torrent of figures. They had to find the exact position in which the Anvardian flagship would be in precisely seventy-two hours. Under rang the signals to the robots in the engine room, and slowly, ponderously, the vengeance slid across five million miles of space. All set, said Hunda. Let's go. Saunders smiled a mirthless skinning of teeth, and threw his main switch in reverse three days forward in time, to lie alongside the Anvardian dreadnought. Frantically, Hunda threw the hyperdrive back in, matching translite velocities. They could see the ship now. It loomed like a metal mountain against the stars, and every gun in the vengeance cut loose. Vortex cannon, blasters, atomic shells and torpedoes, gravity snatchers, all the hell which had ever been brewed in the tortured centuries of history vomited against the screens of the Anvardian flagship. Under that monstrous barrage, filling space with raving energy till it seemed its very structure must boil, the screens went down, a flare of light searing like another nova, and through the solid matter of her hull those weapons bored, cutting, blasting, disintegrating. Steel boiled into vapor, into atoms, into pure devouring energy that turned on the remaining solid material. Through and through the hull that fury raged, a waste of flame that left not even ash in its track. And now the rest of the Imperial fleet drove against the Anvardi, assaulted from outside, with a devouring monster in its very midst. The Anvardian fleet lost the offensive, recoiled and broke up into desperately fighting units. War snarled between the silent white stars. Still the Anvardi fought, hurling themselves against the ranks of the Imperials, wrecking ships and slaughtering men even as they went down. They still had the numbers, if not the organization and they had the same weapons and the same bitter courage as their foes. The bridge of the vengeance shook and roared with the shock of battle. The lights darkened, flickered back, dimmed again. The riven air was sharp with ozone, and the intolerable energies loosed made her interior a furnace. Reports clattered over the communicator. Number three screened down. Compartment number five doesn't answer. Vortex turret 537 out of action. Still she fought. Still she fought, hurling metal and energy in an unending storm, raging and rampaging among the ships of the Anvardi. Saunders found himself manning a gun, shooting out at vessels he couldn't see, getting his aim by sweat-blinded glances at the instruments and the hours dragged away in flame and smoke and racking thunder. They're fleeing. The exorbitant shout rang through every remaining compartment of the huge old ship. Victory, victory, victory. 
She had not heard such cheering for five thousand weary years. Saunders staggered drunkenly back onto the bridge. He could see the scattered units of the Anvardi now that he was behind them, exploding out into the galaxy in wild search of refuge, hounded and harried by the vengeful Imperial fleet. And now the dreamer stood up, and suddenly he was not a stump-legged little monster, but a living god, whose awful thought leaped across space, faster than light, to bound and roar through the skulls of the barbarians. Saunders fell to the floor under the impact of that mighty shout. He lay numbly staring at the impassive stars while the great command rang in his shuddering brain. Soldiers of the Anvardi, your false emperor is dead, and Tori the Red, empress of the galaxy, has the victory. You have seen her power. Do not resist it longer, for it is unstoppable. Lay down your arms. Surrender to the mercy of the Imperium. We pledge you amnesty and safe conduct, and bear this word back to your planets. Tari the Red calls on all the chiefs of the Anvardian Confederacy to pledge fealty to her, and aid her in restoring the Galactic Empire. Chapter 6 Flight Without End they stood on a balcony of the Brontothor and looked again at old earth for the first time in almost a year, in their last time, perhaps, in their lives. It was strange to Saunders, this standing again on the planet which had borne him after those months in the many and alien worlds of the galaxy, huger than he could really imagine. There was an odd little tug at his heart for all the bright hope of the future. He was saying good-bye to Eve's world. But Eve was gone. She was part of a past forty-eight thousand years dead. And he had seen those years rise and die. His one year of personal time was filled and stretched by the vision of history until Eve was a remote, lovely dream. God keep her wherever her soul had wandered in these millennia. God grant she had had a happy life. But as for him, he had his own life to live, and a mightier task at hand than he had ever conceived. The last month rose in his mind, a bewilderment of memory. After the surrender of the Anvardian fleet, the Imperials had gone under their escort directly to Canopus and thence through the Anvardian Empire, and chief after chief, now that Aruthalan was dead and Tari had shown she could win a greater mastery than his, pledged allegiance to her. Hunda was still out there with Belgate, fighting a stubborn Anvardian earl. The dreamer was in the great Polarian system, toiling at readjustment. It would be necessary, of course, for the imperial capital to move from isolated Sol to central Polaris, and Tori did not think she would ever have time or opportunity to visit Earth again. And so she had crossed a thousand starry light years to the little lonely sun which had been her home. She brought ships, machines, troops. Saul would have a military base sufficient to protect it. Climate engineers would drive the glacial winter of Earth back to its poles and begin the resettlement of the other planets. There would be schools, factories, civilization, 
Saul would have cause to remember its empress. Saunders came along because he couldn't quite endure the thought of leaving earth altogether without farewell. Vargor, grown ever more silent and moody, joined them. But otherwise the old comradeship of Bronthor was dissolving in the sudden fury of work and war and complexity which claimed them. And so they stood again in the old ruined castle, Saunders and Tory, looking out at the night of earth. It was late. All others seemed to be asleep. Below the balcony the black walls dropped dizzily to the gulf of night that was the main courtyard. Beyond it, a broken section of outer wall showed snow lying white and mystic under the moon. The stars were huge and frosty, flashing and glittering with cold crystal light above the looming pines. Grandeur and arrogance and remoteness wheeling enormously across the silent sky. The moon rode high, its scarred old face, the only familiarity from Saunders' age, its argent radiance flooding down on the snow to shatter in a million splinters. It was quiet, quiet. Sound seemed to have frozen to death in the bitter windless cold. Saunders had stood alone, wrapped in furs, with his breath shining ghostly from his nostrils, looking out on the silent winter world, and thinking his own thoughts. He had heard a soft footfall and turned to see Tari approaching. I couldn't sleep, she said. She came out onto the balcony to stand beside him. The moonlight was white on her face, shimmering faintly from her eyes and hair. She seemed a dim goddess of the night. What were you thinking, Martin? she asked after a while. Oh, I don't know, he said. Just dreaming a little, I suppose. It's a strange thought to me to have left my own time forever and now to be leaving even my own world. She nodded gravely. I know. I feel the same way. Her low voice dropped to a whisper. I didn't have to come back in person, you know. They need me more at Polaris. But I thought I deserved this last farewell to days when we fought with our own hands and fared between the stars. And we were a small band of sworn comrades whose dreams out stripped our strength. It was hard and bitter, yes, but I don't think we'll have time for laughter any more. When you work for a million stars, you don't have a chance to see one peasant's wrinkled face light with a deed of kindness you did, or hear him tell you what you did wrong. The world will all be strangers to us. For another moment, silence under the far stars, then, Martin, I am so lonely now. He took her in his arms. Her lips were cold against his, cold with the cruel, silent chill of the night. But she answered him with a fierce yearning. I think I love you, Martin. After a very long time, suddenly she laughed, a clear and lovely music echoing from the frosty towers of Bronthor. Oh, Martin, I shouldn't have been afraid. We'll never be lonely, not ever again. The moon had sunk far toward the dark horizon when he took her back to her rooms. He kissed her good night and went down the booming corridor toward his own chambers. His head was a whirl. He was drunk with the sweetness and wonder of it. He felt like singing and laughing aloud and embracing the whole starry universe. Tari, Tari, Tari. Martin. He paused. There was a figure standing before his door, a tall, slender form wrapped in a dark cloak. 
The dull light of a floral globe threw the face into sliding shadow and tormented highlights. Vargor. What is it? he asked. The prince's hand came up, and Saunders saw the blunt muzzle of a stun pistol gaping at him. Vargor smiled, lopsidedly and sorrowfully. I'm sorry, Martin, he said. Saunders stood paralyzed with unbelief. Vargor. Why, Vargor had fought beside him. They'd saved each other's lives, laughed and worked and lived together. Vargor! The gun flashed. There was a crashing in Saunders' head, and he tumbled into illumable darkness. He awoke very slowly, every nerve tingling with the pain of returning sensation. Something was restraining him. As his vision cleared, he saw that he was lying bound and gagged on the floor of his time projector. The time machine, he'd all but forgotten it, left it standing in a shed while he went out to the stars. He'd never thought to have another look at it. The time machine. Vargor stood in the open door, a floral globe in one hand, lighting his haggard face. His hair fell in disarray past his tired, handsome features, and his eyes were as wild as the low words that spilled from his mouth. I'm sorry, Martin. Really, I am. I like you. And you've done the Empire such a service as it can never forget. And this is a low trick as one man can ever play on another. But I have to. I'll be haunted by the thought of this night all my life. But I have to. Saunders tried to move, snarling incoherently through his gag. Vargor shook his head. Oh, no, Martin, I can't risk letting you make an outcry. If I'm to do evil... I'll at least do a competent job of it. I love Tori, you see. I've loved her ever since I first met her, when I came from the stars with a fighting fleet to her father's court, and saw her standing there with the frost crackling through her hair, and those gray eyes shining at me. I love her, so it's like a pain in me. I can't be away from her. I'd pull down the cosmos for her sake, and I thought she was slowly coming to love me. Tonight I saw you two on the balcony. I knew I'd lost. Only I can't give up. Our breed has fought the galaxy for a dream. Martin, it's not in us ever to stop fighting while life is in us. Fighting by any means for whatever is dear and precious. But fighting. Vargor made a gesture of deprecation. I don't want power, Martin. Believe me. The consort's job will be hard and unglamorous galling to a man of spirit. But if that's the only way to have her, then so be it. And I do honestly believe, right or wrong, that I'm better for her and for the Empire than you. You don't really belong here, you know. You don't have the tradition, the feeling, the training. You don't even have the biological heritage of five thousand years. Tari may care for you now, but think twenty years ahead— Vargor smiled wryly. I'm taking a chance, of course. If you do find a means of negative time travel and come back here, it will be disgrace and exile for me. It would be safer to kill you, but I'm not quite that much of a scoundrel. I'm giving you your chance. At worst, you should escape into time when the Second Empire is in its glorious bloom, a happier age than this. And if you do find a means to come back, well... Remember what I said about your not belonging, and try to reason with clarity and kindness. Kindness to Tari Martin. 
He lifted the floral globe, casting its light over the dim interior of the machine. So it's good-bye, Martin, and I hope you won't hate me too much. It should take you several thousand years to work free and stop the machine. I've equipped it with weapons, supplies, everything I think you may need for any eventuality. But I'm sure you'll emerge in a greater and more peaceful culture and be happier there. His voice was strangely tender all of a sudden. Goodbye, Martin, my comrade, and good luck. He opened the main drive switch and stepped out as the projector began to warm up. The door clanged shut behind him. Saunders writhed on the floor, cursing with a brain that was a black cauldron of bitterness. The great drone of the projector rose. He was on his way. Oh, no, stop the machine. God set me free before it's too late. The plastic cords cut his wrists. He was lashed to a stanchion, unable to reach the switch with any part of his body. His groping fingers slid across the surface of a knot, the nails clawing for a hold. The machine roared with full power, driving ahead through the vastness of time. Bargor had bound him skillfully. It took him a long time to get free. Toward the end he went slowly, not caring, knowing with a dull knowledge that he was already more thousands of irretrievable years into the future than his dials would register. He climbed to his feet, plucked a gag from his mouth, and looked blankly out at the faceless gray. The sentry needle was hard against its stop. He estimated vaguely that he was some ten thousand years into the future already. Ten thousand years! He yanked down the switch with a raging burst of savagery. It was dark outside. He stood stupidly for a moment before he saw water seeping into the cabin around the door. Water! He was underwater, short circuits. Frantically, he slammed the switch forward again. He tasted the water on the floor. It was salt. Sometime in that ten thousand years, for reasons natural or artificial, the sea had come in and covered the site of Bronthor. A thousand years later he was still below its surface. Two thousand, three thousand, ten thousand. Tari, Tari. For twenty thousand years she had been dust on an alien planet. Belgati was gone with his wry smile. Hunda's staunchness, even the dreamer, must long ago have descended into darkness. The sea rolled over dead Bronthor, and he was alone. He bowed his head on his arms and wept. For three million years the ocean lay over Bronthor's land, and Saunders drove onward. He stopped at intervals to see if the waters had gone. Each time the frame of the machine groaned with pressure and the sea poured in through the crack of the door. Otherwise he sat dully in the throbbing loneliness, estimating time covered by his own watch and the known rate of the projector, not caring any more about dates or places. Several times he considered stopping the machine, letting the sea burst in and drown him. There would be peace in the depths, sleep not forgetting. But no, it wasn't in him to quit so easily. Death was his friend. Death would always be there, waiting for his call. But Tari was dead. Time grayed to its end. In the four-millionth year, he stopped the machine and discovered that there was dry air around him. He was in a city. 
but it was not such a city as he had ever seen or imagined. He couldn't follow the wild geometry of the titanic structures that loomed about him, and they were never the same. The place throbbed and pulsed with incredible forces. It wavered and blurred in a strangely unreal light. Great, devastating energies flashed and roared around him. Lightning came to earth. The air hissed and stung with their booming passage. The thought was a shout filling his skull, blazing along his nerves, too mighty a thought for his stunned brain to do more than grope after meaning. Creature, from out of time, leave this place at once, or the forces we use will destroy you. Through and through him, that mental vision seared down to the very molecules of his brain. His life lay open to them in a white flame of incandescence. Can you help me? he cried to the gods. Can you send me back through time? Man, there is no way to travel far backward in time. It is inherently impossible. You must go on to the very end of the universe and beyond the end, because that way lies. He screamed with the pain of unendurably great thought and concept filling his human brain. Go on, man, go on, but you cannot survive in that machine as it is. I will change it for you. Go. The time projector started again by itself. Saunders fell forward into a darkness that roared and flashed. Grimly, desperately, like a man driven by demons, Saunders hurtled into the future. There could be no gainsaying the awful word which had been laid on him. The mere thought of the gods had engraven itself on the very tissue of his brain. Why should he go on to the end of time? He could not imagine, nor did he care. But go on he must. The machine had been altered. It was airtight now, and experiments showed the window to be utterly unbreakable. Something had been done to the projector so that it hurled him forward at an incredible rate. Millions of years passed while a minute or two ticked away within the droning shell. But what had the gods been? He would never know. Beings from beyond the galaxy, beyond the very universe, the ultimately evolved descendants of man, something at whose nature he could not even guess. There was no way of telling. This much was plain. Whether it had become extinct or had changed into something else, the human race was gone. Earth would never feel human tread again. I wonder what became of the Second Empire. I hope it had a long and good life. Or could that have been its unimaginable end product? The years reeled past, millions, billions, mounting on each other while Earth spun around her star and the galaxy aged. Saunders fled onward. He stopped now and then, unable to resist a glimpse of the world and its tremendous history. A hundred million years in the future, he looked out on great sheets of flying snow. The gods were gone. Had they too died or abandoned earth, perhaps for another different plane of existence? He would never know. There was a being coming through the storm. The wind flung the snow about him in whirling, hissing clouds. Frost was in his gray hair. He moved with a lithe, unhuman grace, carrying a curved staff at whose tip was a blaze like a tiny sun. 
Saunders hailed him through the psychophone, letting his amplified voice shout through the blizzard. Who are you? What are you doing on earth? The being carried a stone axe in one hand and wore a string of crude beads about his neck. But he stared with bold yellow eyes at the machine and the psychophone brought his harsh scream. You must be from the far past, one of the earlier cycles. They told me to go on back almost a hundred million years ago. They told me to go to the end of time. The psychophone hooted with metallic laughter. If they told you so, then go. The being walked on into the storm. Saunders flung himself ahead. There was no place on earth for him any more. He had no choice but to go on. A billion years in the future, there was a city standing on a plain where grass grew that was blue and glassy and tinkled with a high crystalline chiming as the wind blew through it. But the city had never been built by humans, and it warned him away with a voice he could not disobey. Then the sea came, and for a long time thereafter he was trapped within a mountain. He had to drive onward till it had eroded back to the ground. The sun grew hotter and whiter as the hydrogen-helium cycle increased its intensity. Earth spiraled slowly closer to it. The friction of gas and dust clouds in space taking their infinitesimal toil of its energy over billions of years. How many intelligent races had risen on Earth and had their day, had died since the age when man first came out of the jungle? At least he thought tiredly. We were the first. A hundred billion years in the future, the sun had used up its last reserves of nuclear reactions. Saunders looked out on a bare mountain scene, grim as the moon, but the moon had long ago fallen back toward its parent world and exploded into a meteorotic rain. Earth faced its primary now. Its day was as long as its year. Saunders saw part of the sun's huge blood-red disk shining wanly. So good-bye, Saul, he thought. Good-bye and thank you for many million years of warmth and light. Sleep well, old friend. Some billions of years beyond, there was nothing but the elemental dark. Entropy had reached a maximum. The energy sources were used up. The universe was dead. The universe was dead. He screamed with the graveyard terror of it and flung the machine onward. Had it not been for the god's command, he might have let it hang there, might have opened the door to airlessness and absolute zero to die. But he had to go on. He had reached the end of all things, but he had to go on. Beyond the end of time. Billions upon billions of years fled. Saunders lay in his machine, sunk into an apathetic coma. Once he roused himself to eat, feeling the sardonic humor of the situation, the last living creature, the last free energy of all the cindered cosmos, fixing a sandwich. Many billions of years in the future, Saunders paused again. He looked out into blackness, but with a sudden shock he discerned a far faint glow the vaguest imaginable blur of light out in the heavens. Trembling, he jumped forward another billion years. The light was stronger now, 
a great sprawling radiance swirling incoherently in the sky. The universe was reforming. Made sense, thought Saunders, fighting for self-control. Space had expanded to some kind of limit. Now it was collapsing in on itself to start the cycle anew, the cycle that had been repeated none knew how many times in the past. The universe was mortal, but it was a phoenix which would never really die. But he was disturbingly mortal, and suddenly he was free of his death-wish. At the very least he wanted to see what the next time around looked like. But the universe would, according to the best theories of twentieth-century cosmology, collapse to what was virtually a point source, a featureless blaze of pure energy out of which the primal atoms would be reformed. If he wasn't to be devoured in that raging furnace, he'd better leap a long ways ahead. A hell of a long ways. He grinned with sudden reckless determination and plunged the switch forward. Worry came back. How did he know that a planet would be formed under him? He might come out in open space or in the heart of a sun. Well, he'd have to risk that. The gods must have foreseen and allowed for it. He came out briefly and flashed back into time drive. The planet was still molten. Some geological ages later he looked out at a spuming gray rain, washing with senseless power from a hidden sky, covering naked rocks with a raging swirl of white water. He didn't want to go out. The atmosphere would be unbreathable until plants had liberated enough oxygen. On and on. Sometimes he was under seas, sometimes on land. He saw strange jungles, like overgrown ferns and mosses, rise and wither in the cold of a glacial age and rise again in altered life-form. A thought nagged at him, tugging at the back of his mind as he rode onward. It didn't hit him for several million years. Then... The moon! Oh, my God, the moon! His hands trembled too violently for him to stop the machine. Finally, with an effort, he controlled himself enough to pull the switch. He skipped on, looking for a night of full moon. Luna. The same old face, Luna. The shock was too great to register. Numbly, he resumed his journey, and the world began to look familiar. There were low, forested hills and a river shining in the distance. He didn't really believe it till he saw the village. It was the same. Hudson, New York. He sat for a moment, letting his physicist's brain consider the tremendous fact. In Newtonian terms, it meant that every particle newly formed in the beginning had exactly the same position and velocity as every corresponding particle formed in the previous cycle. In more acceptable Einsteinian language, the continuum was spherical in all four dimensions. In any case, if you traveled long enough through space or time, you got back to your starting point. He could go home. He ran down the sunlit hill, heedless of his foreign garments, ran till the breath sobbed in raw lungs and his heart seemed about to burst from the ribs. Gasping, he entered the village, went into a bank and looked at the tear-off calendar and the wall clock. June 17th, 1936-1.30 p.m. From that he could figure his time of arrival in 1973 to the minute. He walked back, 
his legs trembling under him, and started the time machine again. Grayness was outside for the last time. 1973. Martin Saunders stepped out of the machine. It's moving in space. At Bronthor had brought it outside MacPherson's house. It lay halfway up the hill, at the top of which the rambling old building stood. There came a flare of soundless energy. Saunders sprang back in alarm and saw the machine dissolve into molten metal, into gas, into nothingness that shone briefly and was gone. The gods must have put some annihilating device into it. They didn't want its devices from the future loose in the twentieth century. But there was no danger of that, thought Sanders as he walked slowly up the hill through the rain-wet grass. He had seen too much of war and horror ever to give men knowledge they weren't ready for. He and Eve and MacPherson would have to suppress the story of his return around time, for that would offer a means of travel into the past. Remove the barrier which would keep man from too much use of the machine for murder and oppression. The second empire in the dreamer's philosophy lay a long time in the future. He went on. The hill seemed strangely unreal after all that he had seen from it, the whole enormous tomorrow of the cosmos. He would never quite fit into the little round of days that lay ahead. Tari. Her bright, lovely face floated before him. He thought he heard her voice whisper in the cool, wet wind that stroked his hair like her strong, gentle hands. Goodbye, he whispered into the reaching immensity of time. Goodbye, my dearest. He went slowly up the steps and in the front door. There would be Sam to mourn, and then there would be the carefully censored thesis to write, and a life spent in satisfying work with a girl who was sweet and kind and beautiful, even if she wasn't Tory. It was enough for a mortal man. He walked into the living room and smiled at Eve and MacPherson. Hello, he said. I must be a little early. This has been Flight to Forever by Paul Anderson. I'm John W. Michaels. Production copyright 2014 by audiobooks by Mike Vendetti. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.